Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Another Kind of Mind. Our guest for today's topic is the great Rob Sheffield, one of the most progressive and insightful writers in modern Beatles study. He has, rightfully in our view, predicted that the best books on the Beatles are yet to be written, and he is deeply interested in Beatles mythology and people's evolving relationship with the Beatles. Besides his book, Dreaming the Beatles, our listeners will know him from Rolling Stone. He's a contributing editor and their resident Beatles aficionado. And he has a deep respect and love of both Ringo and Paul, and of course, all four of the Beatles, as well as the women in their lives. Rob very graciously agreed to be our guest and speak with us today about this song. He was a joy. He was so fun. He was. We wish we could have spoken with him all night, really. The only reason that this episode is not four hours long is because we weren't able to speak with him um, for as long as we would have liked, but- But hopefully we'll have him on the show again in the future. Yes. I could have been on the phone with him all night. I'm going to call him right now. People are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, I Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Today, we'd like to welcome to the program, Mr. Rob Sheffield, writer for Rolling Stone, author of Dreaming the Beatles, as well as four other non-Beatles pop culture related books. All of them have a chapter on the Beatles death. Do they really? Yes. My editor was like, every single book, like there's a chapter on the Beatles. Why don't you just do a whole Beatles book? I can't lie. What a thrill to be on Another Kind of Mind. Thank you so much for having me. I worship this podcast. Oh. We worship you right back. I'm dependent on it. Oh, thank you. Week to week. And uh, I completely love this. So it's it's an honor to be talking to you guys. Thank you so much. We do we do our best to to churn them out. (laughs) They take a while, but um, we're so glad that you came on. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you. We've very much enjoyed your coverage of Get Back in Rolling Stone on Morning Joe and various podcasts, as well as your recent interview with Paul McCarty and Rick Rubin for McCartney 321. How was that? That was so, so fun. It was so fun. It was also, it was so unexpected because, you know, it's the only interview that they did like that, where, you know, it's, it's the only thing that they did for the, the Hulu series. I wrote about the Hulu series, which, you know, 321, which like you, I, it was completely amazing yeah and uh i guess paul read it and liked it and he was like why don't we do like a three-way interview with like rick who was you know down on vacation (laughs) on the beach and 
you know, and, and Paul's in his home. So, and this is the first time that they've talked since it's aired. So it was super, Aww. super amazing. Aww. It was kind of a thing where something I love about the 321 series was that Rick Rubin is so good at just, you know, sitting back and just saying, wow. And he and I were both doing that during this three-way conversation. We, we were just there to listen to Paul. There's a funny yeah. moment where Paul was talking about Get Back coming up and he said, you know, of course it was going to be a two-hour movie. Now it's like the eight-hour version. And I'm sure there are some people who would like the 80-hour version. And <laughs> Rick Rubin and I, we both <laughs> said, yep, mm-hmm, yep, that's us. A lot of us. Yes, but today we're all here to talk about the Beatles classic, In My Life. One of everybody's favorite Beatles songs. And I have to say, I hope it's okay to say, thank you for saving this song for me. I could not uh-huh. believe it. Like, Yay! Yay! I'm so honored. Thanks. Honored to be sharing this plum with you. Thank you for doing it with us. Yeah, definitely. We were both really excited that you were on board for it. So like, yay. Oh my God. <laughs> there are places I remember all my life. So we know the song was recorded in October 1965 for Rubber Soul. Um, according to John Lennon, the song's origins can be traced to when English journalist Kenneth Allsop made a remark that John should write songs about his childhood. I don't know who Kenneth Allsop is, by the way. That's just an aside. <laughs> I don't I know if you guys do. I get the impression, it, and again, it's just from really like this anecdote and his connection to John Lennon, that he was like a real uh, annoying jerk who basically like <laughs> felt compelled to insult like this great songwriter in a way that seems really like class bound and clearly like preyed on mm. on John's insecurities I, every time John talks about the origin of this song it just it makes me so mad that he would take such a condescending and insulting remark uh to you know to doubt his songwriting for some reason it really ticks me off so I was I was hoping that guy's name wouldn't come up, but it's it's not already. But <laughs> well, jokes on Alsop because John did a tremendous job with the song. Yeah, thank you very much. And also, it's not it turns out not to be a song about childhood at all. He used that jerky guy's <laughs> comments as inspiration <laughs> for something that you know turned out to be way better. Yeah, absolutely. So take that, Ken. Yeah. The ultimate revenge that you know. Anybody who even knows Kenneth Alsop's name now, it's just because of, you know, this bitchy thing <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. that inspired this incredibly exactly. beautiful song. Yeah, that's poetic justice. For like, sure. Here's your legacy, Ken. <laughs> your bitchiness is our our joy for years and years and years. <laughs> Absolutely. What a song. Completely astounding song. Absolutely agree. I don't even know if I would say it's a very popular song. Like, I don't know if it cracks like the top 10 most Spotify or anything. But I think, yeah, it's, it's one of their most streamed. Is it? Wow. It should be. Yeah, I mean, the streamed list is really interesting. To you, does that mean that it is popular with a younger audience? Well, yes, but it's, a, it, it's also, it's a song that people go to specifically because they want to hear that song, you know? Uh, yeah. It's, and, you know, I'm a rubber soul partisan. I've never, Ooh. I've never tried to hide that. I never could. Um, <laughs> But, you know, to me, I, I think it's beautiful. I mean, it's funny that, you know, like the most streamed uh, Beatles song is Here Comes the Sun by a mile. And number two is Something, which is funny because it's like George songs at, at number one, which is kind of great. 
uh, more poetic justice. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it definitely feels like a very deeply beloved song to me. It's one of those that people connect with personally, sim- similar to like Let It Be or I don't know, Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's also a song that I feel like it's played at weddings. It's definitely yeah. a like a slideshow song. Yes. Yeah, for yes. sure. Slideshow, like, birthday party slideshow. Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> for sure. And it's a title that people have have used a lot too. Um, I mean, just ganked it for stories or uh, movies and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Even aside from all the John Lennon material that it's attached to, because there was a movie called In My Life, and Pete Shotton used it for his book as well. Didn't he just? Great title, <laughs> Pete Shotton. <laughs> I bet Pete Chodden's original favorite title was My Favorite Ideas I Gave the Beatles for what to do with their songs. (laughs) The the true secret mastermind of the band, Pete Chodden holding the strings. The real fifth Beatle. Yeah, for sure. It was Billy Shears. It's funny, it was never a hit in the US, not even a, a single. And Yet it's it's one of their top ten most streamed songs. It's a song that people feel personally, like you said, you know, like weddings, birthday party slideshows. That's <laughs> such a perfect image. I've, I've heard it at at least six birthday party slideshows, <laughs> um, and it's it's a song that really does, you know, like speak to people when they're looking back on their life. It it just mm-hmm. it's it's so simple, so beautiful, so powerful, and you know, something only the Beatles could have done. And the other thing that I think is really special about it is that. It is very sentimental, but it doesn't feel sentimental at all. Like it, yeah. or doesn't feel sacred at all. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It never sounds like, oh, you know, <laughs> you never get that feeling <laughs> off of it because I think there's something about the subtlety of the melody and it's a good solid set of lyrics. I don't know. There's just something very understated about it. Yeah, it's understated and it's also universal and so relatable to so many people that pretty much everybody can identify with it. Yes. I, I wonder if you're ranking Beatles songs in terms of their Instagram caption compatibility. <laughs> I think this might be the most Instagram captioned of all Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've certainly used it, you know, when I went to my class reunion, I, you know, like had a little, you know, all our lives, though some have changed. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> It's, it's, you know, he, he was way ahead of Drake in the Instagram caption lyric. <laughs> it has a very like to our friends past, you know, pour, pour one out for them, the new babies and the grandpas who are dead and, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, but again, without sounding sappy and cloying and also it, it's, it's not like a bar song like you don't turn this on the jukebox in the bar and everybody gets drunk and waves their glasses to it which is usually you know songs that are nostalgic are usually like one of those things you know it's not really a sad song Mm -hmm. it's not really like a like a beer waving song it just has like this really nice fit and it's and we love it and we use it in our lives and I think that's super neat it's definitely like it like you said, not not a sad song per se, but reflective. Really, the balancing act is so delicate, and every aspect of the sound of it is so delicate. And you definitely notice when people try to cover this song or remake this song, which nobody can really do, they tend to overdo the. Uh, they tend to go for a saccharine vibe that just isn't mm-hmm. in the song. 
Um, yeah. It's very dry and, and all the Beatles, very much including George Martin, are, are contributing to that aspect of what makes this such a perfectly balanced recording, but it's, mm -hmm. it's never sappy. It, it, it's, it's just really simple, sparse, but super powerful and effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have noticed that with some of the covers, like even in the vocal line, they'll kind of be trying to go for that really tugging at your heartstrings vibe. And this song works so well, I think, because he didn't, and they as a band didn't lay it on too thick. Everything was just perfectly balanced. Yeah, I hate to say it this way, but the emotional influence of Paul McCartney on John Lennon and that, you know, that this is a song that John definitely wrote in a vibe where he was trying to imagine being Paul. You know, when you think about it, you know, that sort of like reflection, you know, the sort of scene that you described, Phoebe, of like, you know, people like hearing this song in a public place and like a, mm. a toast and like pour one out for absent friends and like <laughs> and the kids, everything. I mean, that was every weekend in Paul McCartney's house growing up. <laughs> yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, Paul always had that scene in mind for when he was writing songs. He wrote songs for those moments and to create those scenes. Paul to this day loves to talk about, you know, what uncle did what, what aunt sang what, <laughs> yeah. you know, during those get togethers. And that was something that wasn't at all part of John's life and that he was, yeah. you know, in, to varying degrees of visibility, very, you know, jealous of, it's fair to say, mm -hmm. envious of. And this is a song, you know, not for the first time, not for the last, but a really explicit thing of him trying to imagine being wired that way emotionally, that he had scenes like that in his memory and and in his conception of music. And he's really trying to really adopt some of that Paul mindset. I think that's what makes the song so powerful. Wow, that's a really, that's a really fresh take. I like that a lot. Yeah, me too. It's especially interesting because, okay, like for instance, there was a Harvard study done however many years ago, 10 years ago or whatever, that said, um, we pushed this through a computer like we crunched this song and we've ah. determined <laughs> that there's a 0.3 percent chance that McCartney wrote it because it seems sounds like a John melody which is there's not such a thing and that doesn't make any sense um because if did you put Lady Madonna in did you get Fats Domino did you put come together in? did you get Chuck Berry like it doesn't mean anything but you know, various people say, well, the song sounds like Paul or the, like the melody sounds like Paul or versus the melody sounds like John. I don't really think it sounds like either of them, but if it's Paul trying to write a melody the way John writes it, that's very interesting, especially in light of your comment, Rob, like it, like if John is trying to write in Paul's style and Paul is trying to write in John's style, that makes that a, a very interesting collaboration also. Yeah, well, as, as, that's totally true. As, as so often in the Beatles, they're more most confessional and most individual and most personal when they're collaborating, when they're singing yeah. together. Mm -hmm. And that that really, and so it's funny that the songs were there, just their voices alone, they really, it's when you hear them sing together that the really like confessional stuff comes out and hear them play together. And, you know, and the way that, you know, Paul's vocals on In My Life and Ringo's drums on In My Life and certainly George Martin's piano on, on In My Life, that these are details in the song that add to John's story and that John becomes more John by collaborating with them and letting them have such an intimate place in his song. The mood <laughs> is in my life, like that way of looking back on, on life, that's something that John Lennon was always very resistant to. Yeah. It's something he had to learn from Paul, you know, like Paul grew up as that kind of person who liked to look back on people and things that 
went before and John was very much the opposite. He, he liked to block things out. And he was you know, growing up in a much more isolated sort of household. Um, and you know, where, where, where Paul McCartney wasn't even allowed to use the front door. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that for John, his sort of primal childhood scene is something like Strawberry Fields Forever, where he's like alone, he crawls over mm -hmm. the wall into Strawberry Fields, sits under a tree by himself. <laughs> that's, that's how John sort of like had these feelings uh, when he was growing up. Not, not, not like Paul, for whom they were very much shared and, and focused on friends and family that he missed. And so I, I think a lot of this song is, and, and honestly, a lot of the songs from this Rubber Soul, Revolver period, Sgt. Pepper period even, are John and Paul trying to look at their lives through each other's eyes because hmm. they're so, um, you know, they're so mm -hmm. obviously trying to imitate each other on yeah. these records in the best sense. Um, but that's where their individualities really come out by you know, John saying, well, how would Paul take a look at this? And Paul saying, you know, how would John take a look at this? Or, you know, Paul saying, well, how would George write this song? You know, like they're very influenced by each other at this point. Like to me, Eleanor Rigby is very much in the same vein as like Paul thinking like, well, well, how would John approach a story like this? And it's, it's very, it, it's so interesting in this period to see that all the Beatles are really influencing each other and actively mm -hmm looking to be influenced by each other yeah yeah well and then just another reason why it's it's kind of a fool's errand to try to parse out all the songs of who did what and 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 who wrote what too but like if you're in a room writing together there's no i mean you'd have to roll the tape back to even uh decide and even then it might not be there could still be dispute over who wrote what you know totally it's interesting that of all the songs, of all the Lennon-McCartney songs, this is the one, the only one really substantively where there was a consistent long-running disagreement about who did what in the song, which is just so astounding when you think of it. Like yeah. the only song where they argue about the credit, which is crazy considering all the genius that they cranked out on a daily basis. Yeah. That's a tribute to how great this song it was. It was the only one where they both like really wanted to elbow each other out of the way. And, and, <laughs> and for. I think it's ultimate tribute to this song. Yeah, I kind of just wish that there were more uh, focus on this aspect of their creative partnership than the disputed authorship. Um, because I know that John and Paul kind of have different memories about it, but it's one of only two songs that Paul said that they disputed on who did what. So Paul's aware that he and John have remembered these two songs differently and will likely never know for sure who did more of what, and that's okay. Um, but he's also not going to be told that his memories are false either, which is also okay. So I kind of wish in general when John and Paul had a different recollection of things, um, that Paul wasn't automatically assumed to be lying with malicious intent of some kind, as though he's trying to make himself look like the better genius or whatever. Um, because with everything these two went through together, it's remarkable that out of their entire catalog, their memories only differ on two songs, one of them being in my life. It's so true that that they they were both such fans of each other, you know, that they were both totally like giving each other full credit for their the things they did. But it, it's funny because it seems to me Ellen Rigby's in kind of a different category because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like that <laughs> falls more in the camp of just, you know, crazy bitchy thing that John said in, in you know in a bitchy mood once whereas in my life it's, it seems like consistently 
they they stuck to their stories which mm -hmm. makes it like really kind of a different kind of thing and yeah well i was gonna say that that's the thing is that first of all it's not it's contested but really it's just degrees of uh collaboration on the melody they both say that john wrote all the lyrics and john said consistently he said that paul wrote the middle eight well he said mm -hmm. in 1970 he said paul helped with the middle eight to give credit where it's due that's his quote <laughs> <laughs> i love that wow nice concession john <laughs> i love i love that to give credit where it's due i, I love how like grudging that sounds yeah, yeah. it pains him you know like give the devil his due it's totally well it's 1970 it's Lennon remembers yeah. so yeah exactly there you go <laughs> context yeah. <laughs> and then in 1976 Paul said also in Rolling Stone I believe he said I liked in my life those were words that John wrote and I wrote the tune to it that was a great one so he is saying in print in 1976 like oh that was my tune like um just so you know john i did write that tune so um and then in 1980 john doubled down again he said in my life paul's contribution melodically was the harmony and the middle eight itself so i don't know what that means the harmony <laughs> i guess his his high harmony on the middle eight <laughs> well the the middle eight oh i guess it, it it depends yeah, on what you consider the middle eight because is the middle eight the piano solo in which there are no voices i thought the middle eight was um though i'll never lose affection for people and things yeah, that came before I, I, I think that's what john means mm, and, honestly, yeah. that, that's and so, that is eight measures exactly so. and it, it, well yes and they use the term middle eight very flexibly <laughs> they did for uh, sure very, i was thinking about that earlier they were very yeah, loose about sometimes what that meant. like the middle eight is like two-thirds of the song the <laughs> that they're very flexible about that it, it meant what they needed it to mean for yeah, the song they were right. working on but or in my life you know i i think what john means when he gives paul credit is the extremely paul sounding like i'll never lose affection or all these places have their moments that melodic break is is very quintessentially paul um I will confess, I find, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Phoebe. Like, did, doesn't Paul also like go into detail in uh, yes. many years from now? In the yes, in many years from now, he says, as I recall it, he didn't have a tune to it, and my recollection, I think, is at variance with John's. I love that he says it's at variance. <laughs> She's so British, and then he mentions it's so British. <laughs> he says he put together a tune based in his mind on Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And then he says, I recall writing the whole melody. And it actually does sound very much like me. If you analyze it, I was obviously working to lyrics. Um, the melody structures vary me. <laughs> so my recollection is saying to John, just go and have a cup of tea or something. Let me be <laughs> with this for 10 minutes on my own and I'll do it. So it was John's original inspiration. I think my melody, I think the guitar riff, I don't wanna be categorical about this, but that's my recollection. And then I think he also said to Hunter Davies that he wrote the melody to In My Life. So it's like a sticking point with him. And I think he said to Hunter Davies, maybe he forgot. <laughs> like he's really trying to throw John a bone here. And he's like, I'm not saying that he was intentionally trying to shortchange me on that song. 
However, I wrote that fucking melody. I will go to my grave saying <laughs> I wrote that melody. I love that. And I love that, you know, that this is like over a period of 20 years, they're disagreeing about this. And, and again, it's, it's so different from the Eleanor Rigby dispute that I kind of think this song is in a case by itself, that the fact that they're consistently, and, and you know, yeah, yeah, I have to say in terms of like Paul saying, maybe he forgot. I mean, that's very realistic. I mean, in, in yeah. so many of these interviews where John is talking, he's like, oh, what, what album was that on? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what song, like a, there's a great part in Lennon Remembers was like, was he, was that from the album with the sort of pencil drawing on the cover? Like, <laughs> I mean, you can't remember Revolver's name. Like, it, it's incredible. Like, John and Mick Jagger are the two rock stars who are so most flamboyant about, oh, I have no idea what album that song was. What year was that? What band was that am an I early in? one or late? Yeah. 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 And, and like, with Mick, it's this beautiful affectation of like how he does not care. Yeah, right. Like. He's like, oh, was that song on, you know, like Beggar's Banquet or Some Girls or Patty? I have no idea. Um, but like with John, it's like, wow, like when he, he, you know, this is John in 1970 asking Jan Wenner, was that on the album with the pencil drawings on the cover? And He's like, like, I know you'll remember because it's your job to remember this stuff. I just made it. I don't know. Totally. <laughs> and, and, and to imagine like the pain on Jan's face, like when John asks that, you know, like, it's like, come on, like really kind of beautiful that, that that's just a couple of years after the album. And, and right, yeah, it's like four years yeah. after yeah. or something. Um, but they're, <laughs> but you know, for Paul, these memories, he pays more attention to them. I have yeah. to say, this is, you know, this is me and, and uh, my personal opinion, but I, I think Paul's side of the story is told a bit more credibly, uh, consistently year to year, uh, specifically with the very, very Paul way of putting it that he was trying to rip off Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Yeah, 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 right. I think it's, to me, to me, that's the detail that like gives Paul a ton of credibility because A, it really does sound like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Mm -hmm. And that this is very much the way Paul as a songwriter would have like no shame at all about saying like, yes. And we know that, that that's what the Beatles were listening to in 1965. Mm -hmm. That's where they yep. were getting a lot of their songwriting ideals for yeah. Rubber Soul from songs like The Tracks of My Tears. And, and or Ooh Baby, it sounds, yes. like, yeah, sounds like it Yes, it really sounds like Ooh Baby Baby. Um, mm -hmm. And another one, a kind of forgotten Smoke Around in the Miracle song, My Girl Is Gone, uh, which is, is a song that they love so much, George had it on his home jukebox. It, it's funny because My Girl Is Gone is, is now, it's, it's not one of the famous Smoke Around in the Miracle yeah. songs. It's, it's not on oldies radio, but play that back to back with In My Life and you really get a sense of like, okay, like, Paul wasn't kidding about the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles thing, yeah. you know? I wonder if that's what John meant by the harmony, you know, like... Oh, yeah. He's like, I had the words, and then, you know, the tune that the words were set to, that was kind of Paul's harmony. Uh, but it, it's wild because it's such a harmony vocal, and we think of it as such a personal, almost solitary John song, but it doesn't exist without the voices together telling the story. And a lot of my favorite Beatles songs, like we were talking about before, they're most honest and most personal and most candid when they're singing together because they support each other and tell the story together. Uh, my, my favorite, one of my very favorites is Help, which was, for me, that was the first Beatles song I ever heard. I was a little kid, mm -hmm. I was watching the Help movie on TV mm -hmm. and the movie begins with them singing Help together. And it's funny that, 
that was my introduction to the Beatles. And of course, it was a very transformative <laughs> moment for me in terms of my life. But the fact that John is telling this incredibly personal story, but he's telling it with Paul and George singing along with him. And they're always like nudging him forward with the story. He's like, now my life is yeah. my life. Is and yeah. it, like John could not even begin to tell this help story by himself without his friends helping him out. And so mm. many of their songs in this period are like that, you know, from Ticket to Ride to, you know, uh, to Here, There, Everywhere. These are songs that depend mm. on singing together to tell the most personal story. Yeah, and, they facilitated each other in these confessionals. It's really interesting. Yeah. So it, and that we think of, you know, confessional, like you said, we think of It's My Life as, you know, John just laying it all on the line. But when you listen to the song, you're hearing everybody in his band uh, totally like helping him out and making him. it possible for him to do this in a way he couldn't have done on his own. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I do think that like the whole Beatles story is in some ways like encapsulated in the catalog. You know, like those songs really do tell a story. So, okay, I just wanted to throw this out just in case, um, <laughs> just for the sake of, you know, whatever. And again, this is in 1970 when John said this, it, during Lennon Remembers, so, you know, <laughs> a fruit from a poison tree, for sure. But <laughs> the whole of what he said was, uh, Jan Wenner asks, when did you write that? And he says, I wrote that in Kenwood. I used to write upstairs where I had 10 Brunel tape recorders all linked up. I still have them. I'd mastered them from over a period of a year or two. I could never make a rock and roll record, but I could make some far out stuff on it. I wrote it upstairs. That was one where I wrote the lyrics first and then sang it. That was usually the case with things like In My Life and Universe and some of the ones that stand out a bit. So again, that's kind of a messy quote and he doesn't directly say that he made a demo on his Brunel, but he's, I think that's the implication of what he's saying, that he demoed it on the Brunel because he said it was one where I wrote the lyrics first and then sang it, although maybe that's the, the, an incorrect interpretation, I'm not sure, but my point is... <laughs> If he did put it on a Brunel, then that sounds like he had a tune, even if he was just kind of humming. Sounds like at least that he would have something because he's not doing spoken word on the Brunel, right? Not in my life. Yeah. And and correct me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong, but like that that recording hasn't surfaced. Yeah, like that's true. Did, yeah. And if he did demo it on the Brunel, it wasn't on anthology. And uh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't to say it, it couldn't still surface, but it, it is interesting that, you know, that John says, he, I think, you know, the way your interpretation seems 100% right. He seems to be saying that he sang a song. We don't know, like, in terms of what he sang. I mean, a lot of John's demos were pretty, uh, pretty much him singing, you know, without much guitar yeah. going along with it. Um, but and we, and we do have, we do have little Brunel tapes of Across the Universe but in like a very, very embryonic stage, like meaning we've heard a lot of stuff. So I don't know what would happen to this one. And also he never mentions it outside of this one time. And it's not part of Paul's story. He's, he's not like, I came over and John played me this tape or anything. It's like, he just had a set of lyrics. Yeah. So. <laughs> but just thought I'd mention it for whatever that's, that's worth. Very interesting. That's very, very interesting. And, and 
And again, given how many times we've seen these written down lyrics, you know, like we, we can all picture that manuscript in our sleep. We've seen the John yeah. written down lyrics and we haven't heard that that, that supposed Brunel demo. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I don't know how <laughs> melodically it was developed in terms of, I mean, like we were talking about before, it very much sounds like Paul listening to Smokey and thinking like this would be perfect also because it's a very smoky sounding song and it's very easy to imagine that uh, John would mm -hmm. have uh, been thinking of Smokey when he wrote it because it's a very smoky lyric. Um, really that the, the Smokey Beatles connection, which was there from the beginning, but it's amazing how it really peaks around 65, 66 yeah. in, in part because, you know, Smokey's heard the Beatles at that point and he's like, wow, yeah, like he's taking their ideas yeah. too. And it's funny that, that, isn't there an interview where John connects the song with this boy? He connects it to If I Fell. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm. And he says, like, if I, he said it was like the sequel to If I Fell or something. And then he goes, not that they're anything alike. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Amazing. If I Fell, that's my first attempt at, at a, a, a ballad proper. That was the precursor to In My Life. It's the same chord sequences in my life. But just about round D and mm -hmm. B minor and the E minor, those kind of things. And uh, it's semi-autobiographical, but not that conscious, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really about, it's not about sin, my first wife. But if it, I fell in love with And you, would you promise? I used to like intros like they had on 40 mm -hmm. songs, you know. Yeah. They'd have a long intro and then the song would start. So that's all mine, the harmonies, Paul's. And maybe the middle eight, let me think, maybe I mixed that and in my life up, although they're nothing like, but they had the same. Yeah, that's the song, that's all mine. Uh, I think maybe the middle eight, he, he introduced the chord in. I might have mixed up the story on the middle eight in my life, and this one, I think it's this one, he, he gave me the middle eight on the F. And in my life, I think, was complete. So that shows that I wrote sentimental love ballads, right. silly love songs, as you call them, way back when. It seems like the connection with If I Fell is is very, very, very close, you know, which is also like a very, a very smoky sounding song, but also like a very, you know, distinctively Johnson. I mean, Smokey wouldn't have written If I Fell because it would have needed to have a more clearly defined chorus. The way the song is just meandering, like If I Fell is just like a bunch of like great linked bits stitched yes. together. And, and that's an, and it's, it's very free flowing in a way that is very John. Um, that you know, Smokey, Smokey wouldn't have done that. He would have added a, a bigger chorus. No, like, and if I fell, that feels to me more like a um, like a, an older pop song, like a '40s or '50s style pop song. Mm -hmm. But an astoundingly weird one. Like I, I just, like that song. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting connection with "It's My Life," just because "It's My Life" is so perfectly structured. And if I fell, I mean, it's really wild. Have if I fell is always such a shocking song to hear because like begins with this intro that then just like doesn't come up in the rest of the song and yeah. this melody revolves but like there's no you know there's the middle eight you know but no no chorus and it, it just kind of like trails off just like just yeah a song that never fails to blow my mind um and there's a all, lot of vulnerability yes so yeah. much vulnerability yeah and uh, and again like a song that you know doesn't exist without paul singing harmony on it yeah um, it's mm -hmm. it's very much like a song where they they tell the truth about themselves by singing together as, as they always do and that also i mean ringo on in my life is that's absolute peak ringo to me 
It's amazing how nobody ever talks when they talk about it in my life. They never talk about what Ringo is doing on this song, but mm. this song does not even exist without Ringo. The way his drumming is just so soulful, so restrained, so yeah. supportive. Yeah. And he's there, he's the pulse, and you know, the mm -hmm. singers can hear them and he encourages them to go on. You know, what, what Ringo always said, you know, my one rule is I always play with the singer. And, yep. and this is like a perfect example of, you know, everybody always does their best singing when Ringo is there, just providing the pulse for them. And that Ringo makes himself very easy to overlook in this song, that was part of his professional pride. He didn't want you to be thinking, wow, the drummer is really killing it. But in my life, so much of the soul of that song and the power of that song is what Ringo is doing. And it's like just such pure brotherhood that, you know, he's not trying to do anything flashy or call any attention, but he's just adding this level of moral gravitas to the song. For me, the star of that instrumental break is not the piano, it's the drums. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, so many of, of the greatest Beatles songs, you know, like from, you know, Hey Jude to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, you know, nobody ever talks about those songs in terms of like, Ringo's a genius. That's why the song is so yeah, great. But yeah. <laughs> Ringo is a genius, and that's why those songs are so great. Yeah. Listen to anybody else try to do Hey Jude. And yeah, without Ringo, Ringo is such a huge, like, huge part of that. It's one of the, I guess, the many reasons why there's no good cover versions of In My Life. But anybody who tries to do it, you can't do it without Ringo sort of, you know, holding your hand through it, which is what it amounts to. You know, like, Ringo is just, you know, he's so restrained and subtle in the song but he's so urgent and insistent yes. and he's so morally focused yeah. and he's and he's such a you know uh, such a loving brother to whoever's singing you know he's really guiding them through this very difficult and complex memory you can see for someone like John who really had trouble opening up you know with vulnerability like this you can really see that for you know for Ringo Ringo could tell that you know that John needed some extra support here it's really kind of beautiful yeah. Gentle scaffolding, I would call it. <laughs> what a beautiful but, way to put it. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Gentle scaffolding. That's exactly it. Probably that is exactly it. I love that. There's a famous story from John about how he first began trying to write this song, essentially making a list of places in Liverpool and like going through them one by one, just making like a laundry list of locations like, where you would uh, do a Beatle tour <laughs> in Liverpool and he said this is stupid it sounds like garbage I can't do this and then I laid back and these lyrics started coming to me about the places I remember it was the most boring sort of what I did on my holidays bus trip song and it wasn't working at all I, thought, I cannot do this I cannot do this you know it's not and I wrote it all down like that and it was such a boring thing and then after going through that kind of thing, then I lay back and these lyrics started coming to me about the places I remember. What he's explaining there, I think, is like that moment of inspiration of the song where, where you're circling something over and over again. <laughs> you're not really saying what you want to say and until you sort of stop grinding mm -hmm. and just let it go and lay yeah. back, huh. and then it just comes to you. Yeah. And there, there's something about this song, like when we were talking earlier about how it's sentimental without being saccharine 
or sappy or anything. When the song shifts from the people of the past, the all the people that he's loved into the person that he loves more, like a lesser songwriter maybe <laughs> would um, would take it up a notch at that point. But I feel like it kind of shifts down almost. And to me, it sounds more like he's, he's accepting something right more than he's like joyously discovering it like as as opposed to like in like in if i fell like a jittery like having like sweating and having flashes or whatever this is more like i'm accepting something that i that i know now and i'm at peace with it right yes i mean that's such a perfect way to put it but also like he's singing this with a specific listener in mind you know like that that second person that's addressed the you that the song is addressed to doesn't go go into detail about the listener but the listener is always there he's telling the story not just to himself in his diary but he's trying to explain really like you put it like what he's accepted about himself or what he's understood um rather than joyfully discovered but he's trying to present it to someone else in a way that is intelligible I think he's most likely talking about Paul because Same. the interesting part for me is that one of the first Beatle books that I read when I was little, that this is one of the greatest songs about friendship. Um, and that was before I had heard the song. Like I hadn't even had the, didn't even have the album yet. And shout, right? No, cause I don't, I didn't have that book. Maybe it was Lucky Ray you. Coleman or somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it might've been Ray Coleman, but um, I was like, oh, okay. It's a song about friendship. And what's really interesting to me is that that does seem to be something that a lot of listeners take away from the song. There's nothing that specifically makes it a, a romantic love. I think you're both right that it's you know to Paul, like that it's like to a friend. Yeah, like there's nothing really like it can be to a romantic person, but for me, he's kind of describing a different type of love, right? Cause it's like, it, it's not a, it's not like a friend. It's not like a lover. There's nothing to compare it to. Like there's no one who compares yeah. with this person. sort of those things but not and again I think it's interesting that a lot of people a lot of listeners take away from the song a feeling of friendship right rather than mm -hmm. like a smoochy song like it's not really a makeout song you know like it's not overly, <laughs> like we were saying it's more of a slideshow song it's like you could play it mm -hmm. at your at somebody's birthday party you could play it at grandpa's birthday or whatever it's not a makeout song for grandpa you know it's about <laughs> just it's just about love. Well, to me, the most compelling line of that that supports that um, theory is the line, all these memories lose their meaning when I think of love as something new. And that line has always stood out to me. Like, what does he mean by something new? It's compelling to explore the possibility that John is expanding and stretching his own personal understanding of the type of like the form that love can take, what it can mean, how it can manifest. 
So the something new refers to something outside of the typical framework around what most people think of as love. Yeah. Love John and Paul had for each other was really intense, very unique, very special, something very specifically different from how they loved the other people in their lives. So I always thought that line was really telling that this could be more of a friendship song than a lover song. That's so totally true. And, and Rubber Stole is so full of songs that are ambiguous in that department. For me, it's always like kind of a matched pair with Girl, which is like mm -hmm. another one of the great John songs from Rubber Soul and one of my very favorite John songs, uh, which, a, a song that's plainly about Paul. It's, it's yeah, absolutely right? about Paul. <laughs> yes. Paul is absolutely the girl in that yes. song. Um, yep. <laughs> and, and I always think that, you know, that also John is, in, is who Paul is singing about and you won't see me, you know, like that. You know, <laughs> people try to say that song's about Jane Asher. No, it's not about Jane Asher, it's about John. Um, and that and that you know they recorded those two songs the last night of their recording sessions the album is due in the morning and john comes in that night with girl and paul comes in that night with you know you won't see me and yeah. like they're both plainly singing about each other i just love that but uh, in my life is like very connected to a girl uh i think for me kind of because they're on rubber soul which is such a sort of emotionally different thing from what they ever did before yeah, that that's yeah. true. A lot of these songs are about, you know, really adult connections, adult connections between other adults. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that the girl is so, you know, puzzled by this really complex person in his life <laughs> yeah. um, without trying to figure that person out or being able to figure that person out. And at the yeah. end of the song, like he's still really like confused and mystified and, and, yeah, yeah angry yeah <laughs> yeah and I feel um, like John and Paul's love was a love that really can't be easily categorized within most people's traditional framework of love so there's elements of romantic love familial love a spiritual connection and then something else that we can't name that goes beyond all of that and so I just think it's really beautiful that John decided to actually write this song and bring it in and tell this person right in front of them without telling them directly that of all the people he loves <laughs> yeah. in his life he loves the one he's singing to more and that it's, suggests to me that. you know because yeah. love isn't a pie you know but it suggests <laughs> to me that he loves him with a level of intensity or passion that goes beyond the other people in his life well like at a level of import that's a what week. i get out of it which is like because why is there <laughs> Why is there a need to to make it a contest? You know, what I mean? like why why are we ranking all the people we love? But um, <laughs> right, I always yeah. take it like here's the, the funniest thing about this is that Pete Shotton is quoted. Shotton says the lines "some <laughs> of the friends are dead and some are living in my life. I've loved them all." Referred to him and Stuart Sutcliffe. This is what he said that that John told him which is hilarious because that is very sweet. You guys were my best friends and I loved you guys too, but it also places Paul on like a different plane from them, Yeah. right? Cause he's yeah. like, I have loved you guys and I totally mean that and I'm ride or die with you guys, I love you. But <laughs> there's nobody compares with him. I, I hope you understand yep. that. Like that's something yeah, yeah. very different. <laughs> no offense, no offense. No offense. Um, also, I mean, all these people that John is singing by this song, like almost without a exception, he hasn't told any of them he loves them in real life. I know. Before this song. Um, 
I hope he told Mimi, you know, like, yeah, right. uh, yes. I, I, I sure hope he told Cynthia, like, yeah, God, I hope so. sure he God, did. Yes, um, I hope he told Julian, <laughs> yeah. like, but, you know, for him to be saying this, like, explicitly, like, well, in my life, I've loved them all. Like, I have to imagine, like, you know, how many of the very few people in John's intimate circle, like, thought, like, really? He does? He's saying that? Yeah. You know, like, that's something, you know. That, yeah, it was hard for him to open up about that. Yes. But what a and sweet the, way to hear that from him yeah can you imagine if he's like that's about you you know like that's almost better than going I love you Pete you know like maybe he didn't say yeah. that but if he said like that's you you're one of the friends that I've always loved you know oh yeah that's yeah kind of super touching. I, I pictured the, the spirit of Stu, Stu Suckler hearing that song <laughs> going now you tell me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> better late than never I guess yeah fine <laughs> Love that's you something too, that you know John. John was famous for more than Paul, but you know, even Paul was by the standards of his time. That's why every night live, like he sings here today, and he gives this really like messy, complicated speech about <laughs> yeah, like how right. he wishes yeah. he had had these conversations with yeah. John. And it's always amazing. You have seen Paul do that live so many times, and it, you know he doesn't have a script for that speech. He's yeah. always just kind of winging it. There's always like you know talking points he wants to hit, but like. He always seems to approach that speech totally like unprepared and like, and sometimes he'll make the same speech afterwards. And like, at least once I've seen him bring it up again later in the show, he's like, it's like I was saying before, if you've got something to say to someone that you love them, say it now. Like, and it's really amazing that, you know, that Paul who is you know, definitely more emotionally open and messy than, you know, than the other Beatles um, in, in ways that, you know, they clearly That's like must've envied, but John more than anybody, there's that sort of sense of, you know, John is in this song, again, like trying to see his life through Paul's eyes, but saying like, what if it was okay for me to just tell these people that I love them? Yeah. You know, which is something that would have been just unthinkable for John to do. You know, even just the word love being dropped into the song is such a bombshell. You know, Talia, like you said, you know, I think of love as something new. And it's yeah. like, he, that, that real, the word love is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that line. He doesn't really come mm. back to it and explain what kind of love he's talking about. And he's so, you know, again, as in girl, he's so mystified by it. And it's so, it's almost like really inconvenient for him to have these feelings. Yeah. It's a really good set of lyrics. They kind of just wash over you and you don't really think about them, but then like you go back and sort of get a lot out of them. Yeah. Also, this is like so many Beatles songs. This is one you hear as a kid and you love it and you hear it as a grown up, and you're like, wow, there's a lot more going in this song. Yeah. Going on in this song than mm -hmm. I realized. It's, it's one of those songs that sometimes like you listen to it and you're like, why exactly did I love this song when I was eight? What did I think was going <laughs> yeah, on? Right, right, right. What, what, yeah. what cognizance of this stuff? You know, like for me, like you've got to hide your love away is always like that. I listen to that song, you know, and another song like kind of on the same sort of, you know, John is like, why can't I, you know, why do I, why do I have yeah. to hide these things? Why can't I show them to anybody? And <laughs> and as an eight-year-old, are yes. you worried about? <laughs> yes, yeah, I listen to the song now and I'm like, what the hell did my eight-year-old self think that this song is about you know like a lot of those songs were like that and um well there's a clown like, in clearly, it so that might have been distracting to an eight-year-old a clown the clown was terrifying for me I just skipped that in my mind I, I just like censored that part out of out of my my hearing gather around all you clowns it was like yeah, you, know, yeah. You, you were doing so well there John let's get back to the song let's, let's, that's right not just one clown like a whole a whole group of all bunch of yes, clowns yes as far as I can tell, like all little kids love that song. That's a song that little kids connect to right away. It's, hey, you know, yes, that. that's hey. so fun. Again, like, and I yes, associate I, it with that scene in Help too, which is hilarious. 
A, I had absolutely no trouble believing that that was where they lived in their little like- <laughs> Yeah, right. <their> little <laughs> they all lived together in the same house. Yes. Sounds um, reasonable. Yes, which I guess isn't that far off from how they lived in those years. <laughs> yeah, but, right. you know, like, there was basically like you know, six or seven years where they were basically together every, every waking <laughs> and every non-waking moment. Something that you hear Paul say in, in Get Back when, you know, when he's talking about the fact that, you know, that they just don't write songs together as much. And he's like, well, but before, like we were together side by side every, you know, 24 hours a day. Like, yeah, so we got up to the we same were, time today. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so naturally, we were like writing songs together. And, and of course, like by Get Back, you know, they're in the studio and then like time to clock out at the end of the day. They go home to their separate houses and, and they no. watch TV. Like, it so actually made me sad at the end of every day seeing them just be like, oh, okay, well, bye. Yeah. Well, like, yes. And, and, and to me, like the, the, what some of the saddest scenes in Get Back is when they come in in the morning and they're like, oh, what did you do? Oh, nothing special. Like, you know, like, and you guys talk about this science fiction thing that like it turned out they all watched on separate TVs in their separate houses. <laughs> and I was like, you guys, like, you couldn't like sort of, you know, go to a pub and like finish one of these songs, <laughs> yeah. you know, like even when you're making this album, it's so important for you to watch separate TVs and separate houses. And, yeah. and, and I'm like, why are you talking about this TV show? I was like, you could be, you know, <laughs> writing a song like that. I mean, that's part of, you know, like the, the pathos of, of Get Back, but in Rubber Soul, they're still like very much in the era where, you know, like this album, I mean, they banged this album out just, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, like they, yeah. they, they did not have any cognizance that they were making this kind of masterpiece that we'd be talking about yeah. you know, 57 years later to them like they were like they needed a Christmas album and they had a deadline and, and you know and they had touring to do before after and during so yeah, it's, they were still living in each other's pockets a lot at that time too yeah so the help sort of house where they're all you know like that's yeah. basically yeah. It's, it's a mobile hotel room bus you know, <laughs> car bus room state car but <laughs> they were like side by side and like that's where like a song like in my life comes from and i love like where so many songs are like yeah paul just dropping in on john and like yeah like they write a song together and <laughs> yeah like, right. stories like that are so like mind-blowing like diamond rings <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yes like paul writing here there and everywhere waiting for the, john to wake pool. up yeah <laughs> yeah by the pool and he's like okay like john needs another another hour to like yeah. you know, drag himself out of bed i'll just sit here and write here there and everywhere like what the hell like insane even when they couldn't physically be together cynthia said they'd call each other and play bits of songs to each other on the phone to get their feedback a lot during yeah. the mid 60s to like mid 60s to about 67 roughly i love really the way that paul sort of sets the scene of them writing it i guess that's one of the many reasons i find paul's like all his stories about being intimately involved with you know the writing of the song i find those very credible um, yeah. something interesting like you you mentioned the quote that Paul's like i don't want to be categorical about it but i think yeah. he wrote the guitar riff. Uh, <laughs> he, he's he's kind of anticipating the pushback he'll get he likes to use a lot of quantifiers because of that i, I think that. but he's also being very charitable i think a really underrated aspect of this period that you know mid period is they were so close as friends and they really didn't care about anyone else besides the Beatles. Like that great John quote, like we understand each other now. So there's no reason to communicate with anyone. Yeah. Else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, No words like, needed. Yeah. <laughs> have and, to have and, conversations. Yeah. And I think that's part of what's going on in, in my life. Again, like sort of John, like picturing how Paul feels about things because um, Paul was a people person in a way that John wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, John wasn't able to sort of, 
you know, interact with people the way that, that Paul could and that Paul just instinctively did and loved to do and got energy from doing. Yeah, um, yeah. Paul had so, more community in his life as a young kid. So he got socialized a lot better, I think. Yes, absolutely. And, and you could drop Paul into a room of anybody, you know, like artists, yeah. sculptors, mm -hmm. poets, mm -hmm. like whatever, and he would work the room and he would, yeah. you know, he would make new friends. And that's something that John never could do. Um, and it's something that, you know, I guess when I hear in my life, I very much hear John sort of wistfully looking at Paul's ability to do that. And also his awareness that he's really dependent on Paul for yeah. connection to other human beings in a way that Paul mm -hmm. is not at all, yeah. not yeah. at least bit dependent on John. And, and Paul facilitated a lot of John's counterculture education in the 60s too. He took him to the Indica bookstore a lot. Because John doesn't like to leave the, the house. John's interested yeah, exactly. he just doesn't want to leave the house. <laughs> Yes. Extreme and, introvert, so he's yeah. And and I love it. Yes, and that's the first song they work on for Revolvers is basically John writing the song like Paul took me to meet the cool people. Here's what I learned. <laughs> they sold me this book called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I found this book. I'm going to tell you what's in it because Paul took me to where the cool people hang out to read these books. Like it's it's amazing. You know, it's the famous Barry Miles story about Paul taking John to the Indica bookstore for the first yes. time. John asks for if, if he's got a book by Nitzka, but it's well that it's just like, this is John being very, you know, very much childlike isolated that he can't interact with people that he's not having these conversations. Mm -hmm, yeah. We all, you know, I'm sure like all, all three of us as, as bookish kids, we had lots of words that, you know, oh, we yeah. were like that. Oh, I'm really fatigued right now. Yeah, or, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I was misled by this, you know, like <laughs> yeah. words we see in books. And, and just to think that, you know, that John, was having those and was so insecure and, and defensive and touchy about them um, as an adult. I mean, yeah. Paul, Paul would have laughed at that if, if Paul, Paul probably did do that at the Indica bookshop mm -hmm. and you know, would have thought it was funny. But you know, he's got you know, Barry Miles and, and Jane Asher you know, taking him yeah. to you know, see classical music. And he's got these people in his life who are turning right. him onto stuff. And John just does not have, John yeah. is watching TV at Kenwood all day. This song is 65, but it's, you know, John is still very much in that, um, that phase where he was at for all of like 65, 66, when he's just, you know, by himself watching TV, not even able to talk to, you know, his wife and child. And, yeah. you know, his dependence on Paul's emotional energy yeah. uh, is such a huge part of the song for me. I also think about that time. I mean, in addition to maybe some jealousy about like, oh, I wish I was out in London meeting cool people and, you know, doing cool stuff. <laughs> I think there's is, it's probably a little bit of sadness on John's part that he wasn't taking Paul to the cool places because they had more yeah. of that kind of relationship when they were younger and they don't have that anymore. You know, like Paul doesn't need yeah. John to turn him on to cool stuff. Now he knows about stuff that John doesn't know about. And not that it was, you know, always one way, but. I like, I also, it's interesting too, because when you go forward in time, you kind of see John trying to recreate that previous closeness, you know, like buying the Greek Island and things like that. Totally. <laughs> yeah. This is John of all of them. John is the one, John is the only one who like, and that they love John so much, they're willing to humor <laughs> yeah. him with this like absolutely bat shizzle Ridiculous idea. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the Beatles story that's underrated, people think of them as being really close early on and being really kind of like scattered at the end. But I think yeah. people miss that the most intense peak of the friendship is this mid period, you know, like mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Rubber Soul to Pepper. They 
want to spend all their time hanging out together when they're not working. For John, especially, they're the only three people that he sees as friends and the only three people that he can relate to yeah, and the only yeah. three people that he wants to hang out with. So he's, all his incredibly sad stories of like going to, to film how I won the war in Spain and like so he's like lonely. oh wow I can't make friends with a single person on this set <laughs> yeah. like, he has to have Ringo come out and, yeah. and visit him in Spain to play Monopoly with him because he's on this set full of actors and directors and all these people who like are all Beatle fans and he can't make any friends there and like it must have been a thing of like just John saying like Yep, like these are the only three people in my life. And that's, that's of course, when yeah. he writes Strawberry Fields, which makes yeah. no more sense. John is like, I have these three friends in the band and they're the only people that I can deal with on earth. They're the yeah. only people. Who mm-hmm. They really band. are his family. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah. And, it, and it, if you think about it, it's, of course, it's stressful to be separated from your family, feeling like nobody really gets you or really knows you, especially if you're famous and everybody, you know, wants a piece of you but nobody really wants to get to know you personally. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, these guys are his line to his childhood, essentially. Yes. His, you know, his roots, so. And, and they're his whole connection to the outside world and yeah. mm-hmm. to like the adult world. Like any social contact he has is through these three, which is kind mm-hmm. of amazing. I mean, even even yeah. Julian, you know, poor Julian, like, like John needed Paul to teach him how to play with Julian. Yeah. yeah. For John, it must have been like, oh, it's so easy for Paul. And I feel like that's like a lot of part of the poignance mm-hmm. and the pathos of in my life is John just saying, why is it so easy for him and easy for the others? You know, like, I mean, George, George wasn't as big a social butterfly as Paul was, but he was certainly one who like, you know, yeah. went to every nightclub in London and had yep. lots of friends independently of the other three and mm-hmm. eventually wound up making an impressing like all these serious Indian musicians who are like some of yeah. the most tough to impress people on earth. You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's when people talk about George and Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar was, he was very hard to impress. He was not one tiny mm. bit impressed by the fact that George was a Beatle. The idea that mm. he being, you know, like one of the world's most famous Indian musicians at that point and, and having like this very serious constituency to answer to, really he should have been laughing just George out of his life. George was able totally independently and totally independent of his Beatle credentials, was able to make an impression on this incredibly serious and demanding and domineering teacher who, you know, and, and, yeah. and he's giving George lessons, his first sitar lesson, Ravi Shankar is teaching George the names of the strings, you know, mm-hmm. and like how to sit while holding the instrument. This is so below Ravi Shankar. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and, and it's not because George is a Beatle. It's, it's because George's yeah. seriousness has impressed Ravi Shankar. Yeah. That's something I think about the George Ravi Shankar relationship that's so easy to, to miss. But like, you know, Ravi Shankar is, he's very used to would be disciples and would be acolytes. And something about George just really impresses him. And all those Beatles, you know, they all had it. Ringo certainly had it. They could walk into a room full of people and people would fall in love with them. And for John, that he wasn't able to connect with those people in that same way. Another so- a song that I think is sort of John, John imagining Paul singing to him is And Your Bird Can Sing, which is one of my favorite John songs. And mm-hmm. yes. song that, it's really funny. John always trashed that song. It, as far as I could tell, John always said, that song was just garbage. I didn't even know what it's about. <laughs> it seemed to me like really clearly it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's John imagining Paul saying like, yeah, you've got a lot of flashy, like cool stuff in your life and you can't make any contact with people, but you know, 
but I'll be around when you want to do that. And when you're ready to do that, when you learn to do that, you'll have me as, as a friend waiting mm. to do that with you. And make That's that connection with you. I see it as more John talking to Paul and being like, I don't care about your fucking stupid 60s, you know, uh, <laughs> London friends and your, your groovy Bob and Marianne Faithful and aren't you a big deal? <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love it could that go either way though, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it could even be both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But the point the is life. your real friend is me. Yes, yeah. <laughs> totally. I love that. I love that. I love that. That's so great. I, I usually hear it as like John saying, you know, like, oh, I've got, you know, I've got the first VCR in England. Whoopity-doo. I've, I've got the first answering <laughs> machine in England. Whoopity-doo. I own this whole room, room full of film equipment and cameras that I have never touched. I've got a TV every six inches in my house so I can watch six TVs at the same time in my kitchen to avoid talking to my wife and child yeah. who would love nothing more than for me to turn the TV off for one second and say right. hi to and them. engage with them all. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and John is saying, you know, like when everything in your life is gone and, and you're finally forced to learn how to connect with people, Paul, Paul is the one who will be around. Paul is the one who's like, wow. Yeah. You know, like, and I like that that is what happened, you I know, like, like Paul is like, yeah, you know, I know this bookstore where the cool people hang out. You'll have a good time. You could, you know, John is so nervous going in there and like Paul's showing him around. And you know, by all accounts, Paul is making it really easy for John. He's not, you know, like up. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. it's so easy for Paul to make these friends. And he's, you know, so generously sharing them with John and, and knowing that John is going to, you know, say something probably sarcastic and inappropriate. Like, which I don't <laughs> yeah. think he did. Paul's good yeah. at greasing the wheels enough to make it not awkward anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You know, when your bird is broken, you know, you may be awoken. I'll be around. Mm -hmm. I'll be around. I'll, nice. you know, I'll take you to the bookstore and you can meet the cool people <laughs> and you can read a book. Like when was the last time? Like, <laughs> And we can make Carnival of Light. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So when Maureen Cleave goes over by your house, you can have all these sophisticated conversations about religion and philosophy yeah, right. based on these books that you found in this room in the Indica bookshop, which is, you know, just like, Paul, like, yeah, these are some guys that like I smoke weed with, you know, like <laughs> they, they have a cool bookstore. Yeah. Like they they'll they'll sell, sell you Fugs records and Albert Island. Yeah. And, and at, you know, me and Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> yes. And that Paul has access to that life, you know, and that social, interpersonal aspect of it that you know the Paul by all accounts all accounts of this period you know Paul is someone that he's never pulling a star trip on these people everybody loves having him around he's always sincerely curious and asking questions he wants to learn you know and he's yep. you know he's, he's talking about how he, he really needs Jane Asher to teach him about theater and talk about like classical music that isn't the way rock stars talked about their girlfriends in 1965, 66. <laughs> yeah. Like he's he's talking about her teaching him things intellectually. And yeah, it's true. It's just kind of like astounding. Like there's no precedent for that in the pop music world of 1965, 66. Honestly, there's, you know, even, yeah. even long after that time period, it's uh, an extremely unusual sort of like public position for any male rock star of that generation or, or any generation yeah. to, to no, make. That's true. And that, you know, Paul mm -hmm. is very open about these people and what he wants to learn from these people and, and also loves to talk about like how he knows something now he didn't know before and not trying to you know Paul is very open about you know like I don't know anything about this tell me and yeah it's it's a very unusual thing 
honestly a very unusual thing for any 25 year old male to have like it's yeah yeah to not pretend you know about the thing you don't know about yeah Yeah. that's a very attractive quality in a person it is a very yes and and i'm guessing it's probably more pronounced for males it's it it takes more time to learn to you know yeah yeah um paul is like very much like no i've never heard of jazz play me some or you know like yeah Yeah. i've never seen any any modern theater you know like take me you know and it's really kind of astoundingly uh sophisticated of Paul at that phase to be able to to say openly like wow you know all this stuff that I don't know that I've never heard of teach me and and as you said it's a very attractive quality in people and people love you know like nobody's nobody's snotty about Paul like asking him about this stuff and um, (laughs) just like Ravi Shankar I mean it's really kind of amazing to read all the many 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 comments of Ravi Shankar about George Harrison in the 60s like while they're while they're still meeting and obviously like you don't start learning sitar at age like 24 and then get good at it it has to be a lifelong study all these <laughs> disciplines take centuries of of you know love of study um and and that something about george and his seriousness just makes Ravi shankar say this guy i will make an exception for and it has nothing to do with him being in a famous english pop group something about george you know and, yeah. and again yeah just being genuinely talk, curious yes and, and talk about like paul and that curiosity that he shared with jane you know uh, there's a lot of that in George's relationship with Patty, that, you know, Patty is someone who like knows about all this uh, interested in Eastern spirituality and, you know, Eastern Which... philosophy uh, long before George did. And, you know, yeah. I, it's weird how everybody sort of overlooks the story of how like the Beatles found out about the Maharishi because Three. Patty was into the Maharishi and, and Patty says like, yeah, I'm going to this talk, George, you want to come? George is like, yeah. And like all three Beatles come. And then the next morning, they all get on the train to go to Wales to, you know, to go on a (laughs) retreat with the Maharishi. Like that's amazing. That, you know, the way that Patty is so involved with George's intellectual life in a public way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she's the one who persuaded him to become a vegetarian too. Yes, absolutely. And that's such a fascinating thing. I mean, to me, that's a, you know, an especially fascinating thing about the Beatles that people weirdly still overlook, but yeah. the, um, for, you know, Patty and Jane to be such a public face of, of how their husbands talk about their intellectual and spiritual pursuits, yeah. you know, and like yeah. in, in George's Maureen Cleave interview, he talks about how like Patty has taught him about everything and elevated his taste and everything. And that, yeah. you know, he was basically like total ignoramus before. And now he's like <laughs> learning about all this like Indian spirituality that, you know, becomes his life for the rest of his life it's very striking that the Beatles talked about the women in their lives this way uh, in ways that other male musicians of their period, just male liberties in in, in any field could not. And that John wasn't able to be part of that at at this point. He definitely made up for lost time a couple of years later. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I'd like to do a song written by two old friends. So, can we talk about George singing in my life in 1974? This is amazing. And Rob, I learned about this through your book. Like, I didn't know anything about Same. it. It's well, it's a part of the George solo career story that everybody sort of tastefully, politely overlooks. <laughs> it's sort of a disastrous 1974 tour which was Aww. one of the biggest rock stories of the early 70s. Yeah. And everybody decided to sort of retcon it out of the story because it's too sad. Yeah. This was the first time any of the Beatles did a major solo tour. And 
it was a disaster that was heard and experienced as a disaster by audiences and the outside world, as well as the other Beatles, you know, who went to it and like had to basically like make their diplomatic comments about, you know, like, oh, old dear George is just, you know, he's okay. find his way. Yeah. He's singing up there. He's yeah. he's up there on stage. Yeah. He's standing vertically on a stage, <laughs> holding a guitar for minutes at a time. Yeah, George, you just can't, you know. Uh, there's this great Rolling Stones story, cover story at the time on George's tour. And after the first night in Montreal, somebody who saw the first night says, okay, first, George needs to stop giving like the Indian musicians an hour of the show, you know, in the middle of his set. Uh, second, like George needs to like learn how to sing and three, George needs to shut up because he keeps giving all these stupid speeches. And the really amazing thing about that quote is that the person telling the Rolling Stone report of this is George's publicist. Oh my oh, God, no. I had no idea no. of that. Like, that's, that's how bad this tour is. After night one, George's publicist is saying all this stuff on the record to a Rolling Stone reporter. I was like, Whoa. wow. That is... I'm shook. I didn't know it was his publicist who said all those things. That's yes. rough. That's it, brutal. Very rough. Yes. And that you listen, there's so many bootlegs of this tour because it was so anticipated. Every night was like a, a every night was a sellout as soon as it was announced. People could not believe that there was this tour that Billy Preston was going on. It was definitely a sign. And you listen, and there's so many bootlegs of this tour out there. And it's astounding how they're also terrible. Honestly, like yeah, George cannot sing at all. Yeah. He has absolutely no ability to communicate with the audience. So he's constantly like lecturing them and telling them not to do drugs when he's the one who's coked out of his mind. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you can hear in his voice that like cocaine and bourbon have like, and brandy especially, I guess, have just completely destroyed his ability to hit high notes or low notes. It's a very do as I say, not as I do. Sort yes. Of. <laughs> yes, and that he's standing up there like clearly, you know, gacked to the skull and it is, is like it, drugs are bad, everybody. Don't do them. Yes, yes. Um and, and he's like, and now I'm gonna let Ravi Shankar take an hour while I go backstage and have my little mid-show break. <laughs> where I get even more wasted than I was for the first set. Because I thought my voice was terrible before. And it's funny that the one person on stage who seems to understand the assignment is Billy Preston. Yep. And like, and he is like such a hero on this set because like he obviously figured out very early in this tour, like, okay, I'm the only person here who has any idea who is coming to the show and what they want to hear. They want to hear Beatles stuff done yeah. in you know, like a celebratory way. Mm. And that- All like, things must pass. Yes. And yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so it's amazing that like every night of this tour, you know, the big showstopper, the big moment is George sings in my life. And he never introduces it beforehand. He starts playing it. There's no way the audience is going to recognize it because it's got this terrible intro with like the horns playing the guitar. Like, it really does sound like the Saturday Night Live goodnight music. It's, it's yeah. like... <laughs> It's terrible. And then he starts singing like, the places I remember. And you can hear like noise in the audience. People are like, oh my God, this song. George is singing it. He's singing an old Beatles song. One we know, one we actually like. And a couple lines later, you can hear like all that excitement completely die because George cannot sing it at all. And, yeah. and, and the high notes, like you can hear like, 
it, it, it doesn't even take until they, like all these places had their moments like some forever not forever like he yeah like, and he's really like his poor vocal cords are just fried at that point yes and and it's the kind of thing where like you can hear that everybody else is trying and for, to really kill it like at the climax he sings in my life I love God more and it is so like just plainly insulting to these people that <laughs> these people are like you're reminding us that you're in the Beatles you're reminding us of this amazing experience that we've had listening to your music all these years and you're saying like but by the way this is nothing this is just the material world it's like it's God yeah. that matters <laughs> Like he summoned up this really personal, intimate, loving memory for them just to say, by the way, this doesn't mean yeah, a thing to it's me. It's absolutely yeah. true. I've outgrown this. Yeah, you're right. right. Yes. <laughs> and also, I've what a fuck life. you to like, I'm going to play yeah. your song, but I'm going to change not a minor part. Not like, you know, yes. something yeah. about the friends and lovers that I knew in Liverpool. Like, you're not just messing with the lyrics and like <laughs> personalize them or whatever. You're like, no, I'm going to take the core of the song and shove it up your ass yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes. yeah. And, and it's somebody else's song like, it's okay. yes. like he was also he was also he was changing a lot of the words to his own songs in ways that people found like a little tasteless like you know like something in the way she moves it it's like oh, oh no uh, gross yes yes exactly let us have a moment george like yeah. like let us enjoy this just, just do the George. You do your job. We'll do ours. Yeah, like and, we liked the song already, George. Yes, yes. And, and, and that's his song. So you know, like, sure. Uh, He's entitled. And, but, but for him to take in my life and to change the whole moral of the story to, I love God more. And he does it again because he like you know like brings in the final verse. The answer is no way for anybody to miss it. Yeah, right. And, yeah. And the music. It's like, yes, and you can listen like. There's hours of these bootlegs out there on the internet and mm -hmm. you can listen to them all and every single one in my life, it's a, it's a terrible performance in its own way. They're all different. But something that's consistent is everybody's favorite moment of the song, the moment where you really hear the crowd like get into it is when George says, and now Billy Preston. And Billy yeah. Preston plays an organ solo and you can hear people scream and lose their minds all the way through. And people are like, okay, we trust Billy Preston. Yes. He can handle wow. this situation. He's going to play a Beatles song. He's going to play a really loving, great, a, not just like a great organ solo, but he's going to do justice to the song. He knows we love it. He knows why we love it. George obviously loves the song on some level, but he can't play it without like deliberately screwing it up in a way designed yeah. to hurt and insult these people, to attack <laughs> them for the very reason that they came there tonight. And it's really messed up. And at the end, he always says, you know, like, I want to dedicate this to, you know, the ex. Sometimes he dedicates it to, you the know, the other Beatles by name. Yes. He yeah, yeah. <laughs> dedicates it to, you know, John Paul. My name says, like, that, that was a personal for John Lennon because I really love him. But, you know, he does make a point mentioning you know, Paul and Ringo too. Like, 
And also you think like his most recent album at this point is living in the material world where, you know, he's already like met them all in the material world, met John and Paul in the material world. And mm -hmm. even though we were very poor, we got Richie for a tour, you know, like he's like doing this yeah. really kind of meager tribute to the Beatles, like, um, and that, that he's on stage like destroying in my life this way is really, I mean, it's tragic. It's there's this pathos to it. I wrote a chapter about it in my Beatles book because I was like, it's really weird that this is an aspect of the Beatles that nobody talks about, but yeah. it's, my, it's yeah. my unpleasant duty to, to, <laughs> yeah. to report that, <laughs> that this happened and that, you know, people all over the country like went to see this show. We're so excited to see this show. And the big moment is like George rubbing it in their faces, you know, like, Mm. I have outgrown this. What's your problem? You know, mm. like you should be so loving you, God more than the Beatles. You think yeah. it was <laughs> aggressive towards the audience? Do you think it's? Do you think it's also aggressive towards John, or and or John and Paul, and or the Beatles? Mm. I think it's uh, honestly. I think there's maybe some of that envy that we talked about before. That envying yeah. Paul certainly something yeah. that all the Beatles had. Mm -hmm. You know, like. It might have made fun of Paul in terms of the quality of his Wings records or solo records, but they sure envied that he was able to take so much pleasure in making music and to make so much music and yeah. That, yeah. that he loved it clearly, mm -hmm. which they were clearly all of them envious of and that yeah. it was so effortless for him where it was torture for them. I mean, poor George, you know, he had to put out a greatest hits album in 1976. Yeah. And Side two is he has to include all his old Beatles songs oh, because because no. oh. after like five years of his solo career he doesn't even have enough songs to fill up side two of his own greatest hits album so the best of George Harrison like his his solo career is side one and he has to go back oh. to you know Tax Man and if I needed someone and also sorry to be so pro Paul like in this moment but really Paul took the high ground about this not once is mm -hmm. Paul ever commenting like. Yeah, you know, uh, if if Paul were anybody else, he would have had at least one song about, "Hey George, loved your greatest hits album where you were able to fill up a whole side." Nice, five years of making solo records, and you got one side. Really loved hearing side two, where I play on literally every song. Nice work, nice work, George. Hey John, imagine, yeah, imagine finishing a goddamn record. Yes. I make 12 of them a year, you know, like, get the it's not that hard. And 11 um, of them yeah. are platinum. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. yeah he That's had a lot of cheap shots. About. He could have taken cheap shots. He, he, he could have take taken cheap. Like, all, honestly, any of us, if we were in Paul's position, we would have done <laughs> yes. at least one of those songs about, you know, and this is after, you know, like John has done, how do you sleep with yes. George playing guitar on it? Yeah. Um, Nobody on earth would have held it against Paul if he did an answer song two years later. It was like, how do I sleep? Well, I sleep in between making hit records, whereas you sleep for years at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sometimes get out of bed and go to the studio. How about you, George and John? How do I sleep? The only thing I've done was yesterday. Well, the only thing you did was not play on yesterday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Like for Paul's refusal to be petty in this period, which he got no credit for. Absolutely nobody in the 70s sure. is running headlines saying, yep, Paul is sure being mature about this. Right. Again, Paul gets right. no credit, no credit for all this stuff, but he's taking the high high ground. Like you said, he should, he would have and arguably should have done some really bitchy <laughs> songs about this. Um, 
and people, you know, it, 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 it's crazy. Like, but there's, there's that great quote in 1980 when like, you know, John is finally make, making his first record in five years after literally not touching his guitar or writing a song for years. And I, I think it's the David Sheff interview where he's asked if he still keeps in touch with Paul and, and John says, how, how am I supposed to keep in touch with him? He's got 30,000 solo yeah. records out and he is like and he tours kids. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When is he supposed to have time to talk on the phone? And I, I just love that for John, like, you know, that's a beautiful moment where the mask slips and how yeah, envious right. he is very understandably. We're all envious of Paul. Like, it's amazing. You know, like we're talking about like the fact that he's doing these tours now, like, you know, before, during and after his 80th birthday, that he loves doing it as much as ever. And that for the other Beatles who are like really struggling to finish their records, to even finish their records, to even go to a studio and record songs that other people have written for them, it's really like a chore. And they see Paul loving it so much and they can make fun of like the content of his songs. But, you know, yeah. he's loving making music and he's putting out songs that people care about. And it's, it's natural that they are so upset about this. And I think that's a huge part of George doing in my life is that, yeah. you know, he's like, if I had one song like this that I could do, and, you know, of course, George has got all these solo hits that are so great and so yeah. beloved that he underrates. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, Give Me Love, which, you know, is one of my favorite songs. Yeah, that's one book. of my favorite George songs. I love that. So that's really so. underrated. And it seems like, um, you know, like George is a hit, like he didn't give himself credit, but again, like he's up there and he's singing in my life and he's really so obviously conflicted by it. And so mad at this song and mad at yeah. the other Beatles, mad at John, mad at Paul, they're all mad at each other. Of course, like, like George is all mad at them because like none of them will show up and do a guest spot on his tour, which he's begging them to do. Um, and when he's doing the, the show at Madison Square Garden in New York, he's very simply asking John, will you show up and just stand on stage and wave? I'm not going to make you do a whole song. Just show up just to give me a vote of confidence here. And John feels like he can't say no because he did the same thing for Elton John like yeah. last week. Right. And, and and stayed for three songs. But like he just he just flat out refuses to like get up with, you know, with George and even like, you know, do a wave or even play tambourine. You know, and, and George is doing In yeah. My Life at this show. Um, you know, Paul, Paul goes to the after party, but not the show. Like it's it's a thing where they're all really ambivalent about this. And of course, the other Beatles are really watching to see how George's tour goes because, you know, he's at least having the courage to like go out and do this. You know, Paul is is playing live with Wings, but still at this point, not doing any Beatles songs, which is just hilariously insane. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the time, for the first six or seven years of his solo career was like, I'm just going to do Wings songs. He, he got over that really quick. But, you know, but people forget that like, you know, Paul did, he toured for six years without doing any Beatles songs at all. I'm envious and, of those people who got to see Wings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Full board. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Every tour I'm like, okay, let's do some more Wings songs or let's do yes, some more I solo love it. stuff. I love yeah. it. Well, it's well, because like this tour, that, this set list of this tour that he was just doing in the US, where it seemed like half the set list was Wings songs. It was really kind of amazing. Like, refreshing. The, the night I saw, yes three of the first four songs he played were wing songs and we're like wow like maybe he's just going to do a wings set <laughs> so cool yeah i love how like paul has finally like stepped to and claimed the wings legacy after sort of down downplaying for sure. it for a long time. i love wings but yeah it would have been really fun to see especially like you hear all those great stories about all those early university gigs where they just you know yeah. put the guitars in a van and they show up at some college and they're like 
hi, can we play in like your common room tonight? And they're like, uh, wait, you're Paul McCartney. <laughs> and it's like really weird. And like, nobody can believe that this is happening. And you know, they're just doing all these like unannounced, almost anonymous shows in this really amateur level. Um, and the tickets were so cheap because they were playing in student unions and things like that. Yeah, so, so a I college kid could afford it. Yeah. yeah. Even on, like it. the Wings Over America tour, you know, like they're playing all these stadiums and like finally Paul is doing all these Beatles songs and everything. But he's still like, yeah, Denny Lane, you should totally sing a Simon and Garfunkel cover. Yeah, that's song. what the audience is <laughs> clamoring for. <laughs> right. like, cover like, Denny Lane Green. isn't even doing Denny Lane song. <laughs> John Lennon. Sheep farmer, color consultant, chain gang foreman, fighter pilot, and well-known table tennis wicketkeeper. What are you talking about? That's the attitude of a defeatist like me. Bring back the cat, that's what I say. Bring back the cat, that's what I say. And let's get rid of all these mice once and for all. And we really do want to say thank you for being people, people in 65. So real quickly, I did want to, before, before we go, I did want to just ask, um, did you happen to see the Lennon Estates Instagram on Paul McCartney's birthday, on his 80th birthday? They did a series of series. six photos of John and Paul together across various stages of their lives, printed with the, not printed, posted with the full lyrics to In My Life, emphasis on the In My Life, I Love You More part, which I think they pulled out specifically one like Mm -hmm. post of them together so I just wanted to know your take of that because it created a little bit of a stir online I mean for like a day or two I just wondered what is going on over there and is that sort of a like a change in in maybe how the Lennon estate is treating not so much Paul but like treating John and Paul and that stage of John's life because they're generally for obvious reasons, more focused on John's solo career. So they t- tend to kind of downplay the Beatles. But anyway, I was just I was just curious what your take was on that. Honestly, if you guys could do a podcast interview with whoever does John's social media, <laughs> yes. like his social media director has to be like on their own wavelength, honestly. I never know what they're thinking. They're always printing like inflammatory quotes that he said once and they never put a date (laughs) on these quotes. So like, oh, you know, like the Beatles suck. Yes. Say this in 1971 or 1973 or 1980 because it really makes it anything John says on any topic. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason to what message you're trying to put out here. Yes. For as wonderful as he as he was, he did occasionally say some real like goofy things so like awful lot yeah don't print all of them you know (laughs) yes yes or at least put a date on them so we know that yeah this is what john said once when he was trying to make you know this person mad you know (laughs) right or even like his so-called deep statements about the government shouldn't use bananas for controlling people or whatever you know like (laughs) at least the date for a little bit of context like yeah. oh that was the banana riot of 1974 yeah, or whatever exactly, it was. exactly totally it's always weird when like you see social media accounts by rock stars who are no longer with us but like they're posting like they're they're alive and they woke up this morning yeah. George Harrison is like oh, happy birthday Ringo and it's like, oh. yeah. it's like okay <laughs> like that's that's traumatic for us right we were talking about before I think that the perfect dead rock star social media account is Harry Nilsson's because it's it's done by his kids 
it's yeah, not it's like obviously state, done by his kids. Yes, it's not a lawyer. It's not a professional social media person. Like <laughs> it's a labor of love. They're mm -hmm. never pretending, hi, I'm Harry. I woke up this morning and wanted to <laughs> yeah. say, happy birthday, Ringo. Uh, <laughs> and it's, I, I think that's absolutely like the class act for how to do social media account for like someone. It's amazing. Um, I've been loving the series of uh, Instagram stories his daughter's been putting up lately where she'll highlight one song or one album and she'll actually do a breakdown of the song. It's really cool. She's it's doing so a great, great job. Yes, I, I have to say, it says so much for Harry Nilsson personally that he is like remembered this way by his kids. It's like, yeah. such a, I, I think it's like a beautiful tribute to him that they, they, they just, they know how to do this. And I feel like people are going to be imitating the Harry Nilsson account more. The John Lennon is almost like, a classic case of how not to do it because yeah. they're constantly posting random quotes without giving the date that the quote was said with John that always matters because John has to hold the all-time rock star <laughs> record for random bitchy shit he said once <laughs> and never thought about it again. Things he didn't remember and, saying 10 minutes later. And contradicting so, himself directly. Yes. Sometimes in the same interview. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yes, and, and yes, and just saying like random inflammatory stuff that like he clearly does not mean, <laughs> and that he like does not even remember saying ten minutes later. Right, and <laughs> you can't just like you know throw these quotes out there. I I really want to know this Gen Z social media person also because Yoko's social media account is so great, so beautiful. Like Sean's is so great, so beautiful. <laughs> clearly, they have no involvement at all, yeah. or, or yeah. oversight at all. Right? It's like this random shoot from the hip stuff that's always coming out of like the John. Like I woke up this morning and I was thinking, you know, like what did George Martin really add to our music? Like, yeah, right, right. Like, right. And, Stop it. It's, it's like, yes, it's it's like with with John, you have to give, you know, like so the year, context. the day. Yeah, hopefully, the drug he was on when he said yeah. this, mm -hmm. it makes a difference. John's John's. Pot quotes are very different from his speed quotes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, Coke quotes are very, very different from anything. Like there's just the sense like it's totally, it's cut off from the John Lennon story, from the John Lennon arc, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. just these moments presented as all like something that John thought when he woke up this morning. And it's kind of not the way to do it. But the yeah. George thing, it's like very good in terms of, I mean, I, I really like the George social media account. But the John one of like just this out of nowhere, that that post you mentioned of like, you know, these pictures... I especially love the picture of them on the rooftop where like John is giving Paul this lovey-dovey look on mm -hmm. the rooftop. And it's like, in my life, I love you oh, more. And yeah. I was like, here's a really dramatic statement from John Lennon that- <laughs> That he didn't make. <laughs> that yeah. he never would have made in a million years. <laughs> that, like, that, that this is you know, something that like, one of the tragedies of John Lennon's life is he found it impossible to say or express stuff like this in his lifetime. And, mm -hmm. you know, 42 years after his death, like. Paul is up there on stage literally every night telling crowds of thousands and thousands of people <laughs> things that he wishes he said to John Lennon while they were alive. That is so poignant and so powerful. And for like the John Lennon social media thing to be like, yep, yep, this is me, John Lennon. And I just wanted to wish Paul a happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to come out and say it, Paul, this song was always about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, this is a major statement to be presenting from yeah. like the official, ooh, it's official blue check John Lennon. Yeah. Um, there's something really kind of strange about that and, and kind of beautiful. I it, It's something kind of like real, but so messy. So messy, messy. It is messy. messy. Yeah. Well, did you true. guys see the photo manipulation that was up for like a couple hours and then it got like oh, taken God. down quickly? No, it I was, missed that. Okay. So there was a photo manipulation um, that's, 
it was actually an originally a picture of Jane Asher and Paul with his head on. Oh his yeah, shoulder. the one at the wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and someone manipulated it so it was John with Paul with his head on his shoulder. And the account, the John Lennon official account, posted that manip, and they were like. Oh, I can't even remember. And didn't get fired. And didn't and they didn't get fired because this is clearly the same person. <laughs> so and he's like, I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free. Don't even yes, worry about it. Yes. <laughs> so many people would do this for free. Yes. That's the thing. We could all we could all trade off. We could all like have a you know, like Talia has a week, Phoebe has a week. None of us are gonna go out there presenting these doctored photos of like yeah, right. John with his head on pulp. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I have to go find that one now. Um, yeah. but like, well, the because, account took it down a couple. It was only up for a couple hours. It only exists in screenshots now. But, but what it, I find compelling about the In My Life series is that they're still up. So uh, it, it does make the gears turn in your head a little bit. Okay. Is this the Lennon estate admitting well, that I they mean, know that this song was about Paul? It's nothing controversial. Even if they were to say, like, we think he wrote it about Paul, which they, mm-hmm. they I don't think they even have the authority to say. And they're not really saying they're implying. But even if they're implying it, it's not, mm-hmm. it's nothing bad about it. It's mm-hmm. just, I'm just wondering, like, does the family and whoever's in charge of the estate, which um, would be the family, do they give, are they giving approval for this stuff or is it just somebody's job and they're just like, you, you know, the drill, just do whatever. Just go have at it. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, they're not even reading it. If they were reading it, like, like, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. I mean, Yoko, like we, we don't know, like whether Yoko herself is like doing it, but, um, Clearly, like it's a very Yoko. It's it's really brilliantly done. I love Yoko. Like, yeah, uh, I agree. It I, sounds like her, even if yeah, it's not her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes exactly. there'll be things that are dated. I like when there's old quotes that are dated. Um, you know, Sean, like very thoughtful, like very like. So I don't even think those two even are following the right. official <laughs> John so, so, right. yeah. and, and we say the estate, like we keep thinking of the estate, like I think it's like you know. Like a conglomerate of people. I think it's a Gen Z social media pro who is really looking forward someday to getting a better job, like maybe doing Selena Gomez. Like, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or Just maybe randomly doing, pulling stuff. Yes, exactly. Like someone who really hopes for a better social media job someday. Like now like in charge of just like officially posting random stuff under the official John Lennon blue check account. And I think there's, I think the rest of the estate, the, God knows the rest of the family paying no attention to this whatsoever because there's clearly no That's oversight or, or any advice or guidance whatsoever. And yeah, yeah. All, co- all coming as like official public statements from John Lennon. <laughs> yeah, so no, it's just so chaotic. In a way that is sometimes, I mean, I, it's weird how many times I, I read that. And, and of course, I follow it on all social media platforms because I'm fascinated by it. And how many times I think, does this social media director even know that John is dead? It's like, there's very frequently, like there's quotes like, sometimes today I look at the news and it's like, okay, whoa, no, no, no. No, you do not look at the yes, No, like, yeah, that's not happening. That's not happening. Sometimes I'm like, wow, like how little research they've done into John Lennon is really kind of amazing. And I imagine they're just like randomly Googling stuff. Like the fact that, you know, like that they saw somebody do this like little Photoshop, God knows, like, and, and that's, you know, that's just one example where they caught it. There's a lot of like, like doctored <laughs> rock photos on the, you know, there's the famous one that it weirdly gets reprinted all the time of like John playing guitar with Che Guevara. And yeah. oh yeah, <laughs> right. you see that all the time. from like classic rock, official Twitter account of classic rock. 
It, 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 <laughs> we want it to are, be true. <laughs> yes. And all the replies are like, it's so like, ridiculous. It's like something an eight year old did, you know, like, it's like yeah. anybody who did like 30 seconds of research would know that no, this is not John and Che Guevara like, yeah. jamming, you know, like, uh, Tupac like, and Marilyn. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and the fact that, you know, that they are, I, I look forward to them falling for more of these things. I want to see one with, you know, yeah, I, I absolutely want to see one with like John Lennon and Harry Styles at the beach. You yes. know, like, <laughs> and clearly it's so easy to fool the John Lennon social media person. And again, I think it's a person, <laughs> not a team, because a team is not, you know, I think it's one. The team has checks and balances. Yes, I think it's, I, yes, I think it's <laughs> one hardcore stoner in the dorm room who has a password that nobody else has. And honestly, like with the in my life thing, I wanted if the person wanted to get caught. Sometimes I'm like, wow, they 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 really just want to see if anybody's paying attention at this point. <laughs> well, yeah. whoever yes. you are out there, it's been very entertaining. So keep yes. up the good Stay work. Get in touch you. with another kind <laughs> yes. of mind. And That's right. Talk to them about your backstory because we all wonder like, what the hell you is going know. Your mind on we'll a daily basis. Well, Rob, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Oh my God, so much fun. First of all, you're welcome back on the show anytime. Anytime. I, I love this podcast so much. Another Kind of Mind is such a huge part of my life. And I can't uh -huh. tell you like how honored I am to talk to you guys. Uh -huh. Especially, I can't thank you enough for choosing this song as like a topic because every stage of the song, you know, we've been through like the whole journey of this song from the writing of it to, you know, mm -hmm. to the collaboration to... You know, to Ringo playing to, to to George trying to do it on his solo <laughs> tour and, and <laughs> the song is such an amazing story in itself. It's great. I, I would love to have you come back and we could pick another song. Anything All right. You want. Yeah. All for right. sure. We'll do it. Looking forward to next time already. Yay. Yay. Good. Yeah. Let's do it again. <laughs> thank you so much. And, and thank you for everything you do. Uh, huge fan. So grateful for all you do. Same. Aww. Thank you. Same. We, uh, but we're so glad Likewise. that you are the official Beatles guy over at Rolling Stone now. Ongoing and beautiful story. That to me is the most beautiful thing about the Beatles story. In so many ways, it's just beginning, you know, and it's a really, really beautiful story that it's still unfolding all around us. Yeah. And we'll continue to fold for many years to come. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all you do to tell thank that story. Thank you so much. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Another Kind of Mind. Check out Rob Sheffield's delightful book, Dreaming the Beatles, as well as his other titles, Love is a Mixtape, Talking to Girls about Duran Duran, Turn Around Bright Eyes, and On Bowie. You can regularly find Rob's writing in Rolling Stone, and you can follow him on Twitter, at Rob Sheff. If you like this episode, please find us on social media and let us know. And let Rob know. And tell him you want him to come back on ACOM. That's right. Tell him you want to come back and let us know what you want us to discuss.